Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. We have some breaking news. There is an outline of a Brexit trade deal that has been reached. This is according to officials. The outline of an historic post-Brexit trade agreement reached now. Negotiators still putting the finishing touches to an accord, according to these officials. They spoke on condition of anonymity. And of course, it would then need to go to a vote of the 27 member countries. But an outline has been reached. We know going into the day that there were two disagreements over fish, what access EU boats would have to British waters and what rights the EU would have to impose retaliatory tariffs should the UK limit that access in the future. Well, now it looks like those conditions have been sorted out. The British pound is rebounding versus the US dollar and the euro up 1.2% versus the US dollar at 135.19. We have a little bounce in the FTSE 100 and the FTSE 250. And treasuries here in the US are also reacting. Let's get some more details now. We'll go to Brussels. Our reporter Maria Tadeo has been keeping an eye on the minute by minute news out of the negotiations. Maria, we know that the Brexit negotiators deputy, uh, Steph, uh, Rizo and also David Frost have been meeting since early morning. What else do we know about those meetings? Well, uh, Vani, in terms of the actual content that's going into this deal, what made this deal finally tick? That we don't really know. This is happening behind closed doors. But what we do know, and the market is reacting to this, is that there is an outline to a deal. There is now a document that could become a deal. We understand that they are working on some final touches. And in fact, they're hoping to make an announcement of a deal that's been formalized shortly. Now, in terms of the details, as I say, you know, you're dead right. This was about the fish. It was about about the level playing field and how the two would come together. It's unclear if they say what made this tick, but nonetheless, this huge news, the idea that a deal is now very much within sight and they won't announce it in the very short hours. Maria, what is the sense of next steps here? At some point, we had to come to a day like today where they would hammer out both sides, the various points. Give us a sense of kind of how the next steps procedurally are supposed to happen. Well, first of all, of course, we, we were going to get to a day like this where, where a deal was announced. But I would also say it's, it's now it's easy to take it for granted. But just 24 hours ago, we we're talking about potentially a no deal WTO terms. And this deal is, is a huge thing because it means that it's no quotas, no tariffs. This is a very close partnership. And it means that especially if you're a business right now, it removes a lot of the legal uncertainty. So it is it is huge. And, and, and I guess just, just that line that, of course, a day like this is going to come, but it was not something that we were taking for granted just a few days ago. Now, in terms of what happens next, when this deal is announced, and this is at a technical level, the European, the EU27 countries, and the member states will have to say they agree with it. The understanding, of course, is that Mr. Barnier, is the EU negotiator, is working very closely with them, so he would not agree to something they don't agree with already. And then after that, this will have to be ratified by the UK Parliament. That's not going to be a problem in principle. The Prime Minister does have a majority there. And then it has to be put to the EU Parliament. That could become more complicated this time, funny, funnily enough, purely because I've always said they needed time to vote this. They've said already that they can't read the documents. And we're looking at thousands of pages from now until December 28th. That was the last day that was scheduled for this. So there could be a legal limbo between mm-hmm. the deal being agreed at a technical level and then ratified. But we'll have to see about that. 
And options traders had been positioning for a deal. They dragged down the cost of hedging a weaker sterling over the coming months. So it looks like they are looking for a weaker sterling, which of course is rebounding today on the you know the excitement that there might actually be a deal and that there won't be all kinds of chaos at the end of the year. Now, Maria, obviously, you know, each country has to agree with it, but we hear that they're standing by. They haven't gone home for, you know, what's widely celebrated across Europe, and that is Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Yes, and, you know, the timing of this, Bonnie, was just so difficult. And this whole negotiation and a bigger picture, too, has been really difficult in terms of the logistics because of coronavirus. You know, we talk about Brexit, this happening on and on, a never-ending story. But actually, we look at the details. This was a very quick deal by European standards because the talks only got serious in the summer because coronavirus was a priority at the start of the year. Now, in terms of now, we know there has been a very close relationship and a very close partnership between the EU negotiating team and the EU capital to principle that should not be an issue everyone wants to get this wrapped up before the end of the year purely by because the transition period will end on december 31st that's a legal deadline cannot be moved so they wanted to remove that uncertainty from business and for a lot of businesses on both sides of the channel the uk and europe too this was a huge cliff edge just to think what rules are going to apply in January 1st? How are we going to be able to do business? What's going to happen now? Of course, the coronavirus is very much in place. So this is for sure going to make it much easier for business. If something is announced today, maybe not ratified quickly, but a deal inside. And that means that to some extent, when you get to January 1st, you've avoided that cliff edge. So, Maria, as Vani mentioned earlier, uh, both the uh, pound sterling and the euro are rallying, kind of echoing what you're saying about the business community getting a sense of certainty here. Is it generally accepted that the business community is behind or is behind kind of where the EU is in terms of negotiating Brexit? Has it always had the support uh, of the business community just from a negotiating perspective? Well, to some extent, it it depends on who you ask. If it's the UK community, the business community, the one thing they've said is, please remove the politics from this. Let's just give us clarity and and guidance as to what is going to happen. This is a huge relationship, never been done before. What you have to factor here is that right now, the UK had full access to the European single market. By leaving the European Union, they could have gone to WTO terms. This is a huge, huge departure from the status quo. So this is the business community for sure repeating this idea that, you know, let's just move away from the Brexit narrative and the Brexit political language. Just give us clarity for the European companies. It was also about clarity, just what is going to happen in two weeks time. Of course, there's a story, you know, this is an incredible news saga. But if you've got money on the line and you don't know what's going to happen in 10 days time, for sure, that meant that there was going potentially going to be less investment, that smaller companies were already very concerned about the impact that this is going to have. And again, this is probably just going to be a huge relief. You know, the terms, we don't know. But the, the fact that, you know, you are going to have a deal in place that this is not a WTO shock immediately happening, it does remove a lot of the uncertainty. I mean, I really cannot stress that enough. Well, and of course, we got a little preview of what might happen chaos-wise when France had to stop truckers yeah. coming in just the other day. That was undone at midnight last night. So the backlog did get going again. But this all happening as, you know, at the very same time as we were getting these headlines, the UK's health uh, secretary this morning, Matt Hancock, put more areas into the highest tier four lockdown lockdown. In, in other words, you know, Britain is getting more and more locked down even as this is happening. Hospitalizations are nearing the spring COVID peak in the UK. And presumably, Maria, even though the, the, the instinct in Britain might be to celebrate this deal, that would be a very dangerous thing to do right now. 
Well, you know, again, it's it's you make a good point, Bonnie. The the context here is not nice, and it's definitely not an easy period for uh, the UK. And again, going back to the question of the business community, it's relief too because the UK economy is hurting. We know this already. It's been battered by coronavirus. This is a situation that's not been solved. If anything, you have lockdown now and going back into lockdown, and you have an economy that clearly is not operating or or cannot operate on a normal basis. If you had a no deal scenario on top of a huge health crisis like the one that we have right now, you can imagine that for a business, for a company, this was looking very, very bleak. So again, you know, it's, it's not a moment to celebrate because the context is still very challenging, especially for the UK economy. But again, it's, it's this idea of relief. You know, you still have the health crisis going on. But to some extent, you do know that come January 31st, you're not jumping into this black hole of uncertainty. Uh, Maria, uh, timing the rest of this evening, I, I note that it's uh, approximately 8.25 p.m. in Brussels. Do you expect to hear more from uh, the European officials, or is this something that will be developing overnight into tomorrow? Yeah, look, for sure. Right now it's about, well, I believe if I'm not wrong, it's it's actually 5 p.m. right now here in Brussels. But um, but time is... Oh, right, I'm sorry about that. Yep. When you work in, in strange hours. But, uh, you know, there is still time for them to come out and say, you know, we have this deal uh, just to almost make the announcement, make it formal, and then it's over to the EU capitals, to the prime minister to make an announcement himself and then wait for the two uh, parliaments to ratify this. But given that still, you know, there is hours, uh, working hours to this date and everyone wants to get it done before Christmas to some extent, I would not be surprised that from the moment this is announced, things will move quickly from that point on. Maria, you know, did we have any kind of an idea at all where the common ground might come? Because these two disagreements over fish were, you know, very, very substantial. What access will the EU boats have to British waters? I mean, that's a that's a that's a sovereign question. And also what rights the EU would have to impose retaliatory tariffs if the UK limit those rights that are, you know, set in stone now in the future. I mean, these are huge and they relate to fisheries question, but really they relate to a lot more than that. Yes, and Vani, uh, that's exactly it. You know, this was a very difficult dynamic in which uh, the United Kingdom was struggling to make an offer on fish that would be acceptable to the EU. But again, the EU was unclear about how much they could move if they did not get a guarantee that the United Kingdom is to some extent willing to play among common rules uh, to the idea that it does not become an unfair and unloyal competitor to the European Union. It's unclear what's made this tick. You know, I would love to be able to answer the question at this point. We really don't know exactly what the precise language is going to look like. What I can tell you, though, is that yesterday there was that, this idea that was floating and doing the rounds that the United Kingdom had initially said you have to reduce the catch by value of fish. And I know this is very into the weeds, very, very tiny little details, but they said reduce it to 60%. The Europeans had said they only wanted to do 25 but a compromise figure of around 30 to 35 had emerged. The European has also said that they wanted a 10-year transition into the new quotas. The UK initially said they were only willing to offer three, and a compromise of around five years had been floating. So I guess it's somewhere around those details. And, you know, there was another issue here, which was about competition. How much can the United Kingdom diverge from the European standards? I mean, the whole point of Brexit, of course, was, was taking back control and being able to do your own uh, regulation. So that's, that's clear, and everyone understands that. But the EU also said, if you do that, we need to be able 
to cut access into our market and potentially retaliate with tariffs. So it will be interesting to see what the compromise on that also looked like, because just a few days ago, this was presented as being very, very difficult. Maria Tadeo, amazing. Thank you so much. This is the culmination, really, of you know four plus years of work. And Maria, of course, covers the European Commission, the European Council, the European Presidency, the ECB, everything Europe related for us out of Brussels, typically, but uh, Frankfurt and other places as well. So, Maria, thank you for jumping on the phone on this news. As we know, there is help for the airline industry in the pandemic relief bill that, again, hasn't been signed yet by the president, but is out there. Our next guest points this out. Taxpayers are putting up almost $500,000 for each laid-off airline worker to have three months of employment, while cooks and waiters get nothing. In other words, airlines are outranking restaurants in relief money. Joan O'Sara, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joins us now. Joe, did thought go into this, or was it a simple matter of the airline lobby being more powerful than the restaurant lobby? Well, there barely is a restaurant lobby. Let's start there. Uh, Whereas airlines have been... um staffed up, you might want to say, for, for many decades, because airlines have had dealings with the federal government for many decades, between the FAA and, um, uh, you know, various, various airline regulations and so on and so forth. So, so uh, you know, you start there. I mean, restaurants are a, diff- it, it, it's a dis- diffuse organization. They're not large companies. And even, you know, restaurant chains, I mean, putting McDonald's aside, uh, you know, in a city like New York, you know, Danny Meyer, who's probably the best-known restaurateur in the city, you know, he has maybe 20 restaurants. And so, that just doesn't give them the clout that the airline industry has, even though they employ more people and even though their people are really, really hurting. So, Joe, this is a, a searing column by you, kind of comparing and contrasting the airline industry with the restaurant business. So the restaurants, obviously, it, it is a, you know, it, it's, it's a diffuse uh, industry, lots of independent operators. Historically, has there not been a push to kind of organize better this industry that is so important to uh, many people's daily lives? Well, there is a restaurant lobby of sorts, um, the National Restaurant Association, but it doesn't seem to have a lot of clout uh, for whatever reason. Um, after the pandemic, uh, after the first round of, of uh, stimulus, the PPP program, uh, there are a bunch of independent restaurateurs tried to start an organization called the Independent Restaurant Coalition. And they had a lot of success. They, got, they, have, a, they have a bill that um, w- would cost $120 billion, which is a lot of money. And the idea is that instead of trying to do it like the PPP, you know, the restaurant industry would be, get money based on uh, last year's revenues, pre, pre-pandemic revenues. Um, and, the, and believe it or not, the bill passed the House in October, actually by quite a, quite a large margin. It had more than 50 um, co-sponsors in the Senate, bipartisan. But, you know, the Senate is run by one guy, and his name is Mitch McConnell. And he was more interested in that three-martini <laughs> Three martini lunch tax break, which he claims will help restaurants, but no one in the restaurant industry seems to think it'll make much difference, at least not in the short term. I mean, at the very least, if people start flying again, they will need to go out for restaurants at their destination. But it's going to be a long time before people really start flying in, in, in numbers again, Joe, particularly since, you know, the vaccines aren't out there yet. So 
you know, w- what is the thinking behind this? I was listening well, to... The, mm-hmm, right. Yeah. There's, there's two things. There, there's two things going on here. Um, uh, the, the, the first is that, that airlines, um, you know, they will be bringing people back to work. It's easier to give money to a large company that can do one thing. They can bring 15,000 people back to work. They can bring 20,000 people back to work. It's easier. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, uh, giving money to restaurants is a, is a kind of a messier proposition because there are all so many of them and they're so small and it'll be, you know, th- 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 there's that. But the thing you have to remember about restaurants, it's not just a place to eat. Every major city in the United States, restaurants are at the core of of their vibrancy and their downtown area. And, you know, if you're going to build a new suburban area, it's going to be built in large part around restaurants. I mean, they play a, a hugely important role in the life of cities. And so ignoring restaurants is really a da- damaging America's cities. And, and that's what breaks my heart about this more than anything else. So, Joe, I mean, what's the, I guess, the fate of the U.S.? restaurant, if, if you will. I mean, you know, these, I'm going to call them individually owned mom and pop, if you will, but you know, the, the, the non-chain owned restaurants, the numbers we're seeing in not just New York City, but kind of across the country are staggering in terms of how many are likely, have gone out of business, are likely to go right. out of business. How bad is it going to get? Right. 110,000 wow. are estimated to have gone out of business in the U.S. That's a lot. You walk down, I mean, look, I'm a New Yorker, so I walk down the streets in New York City and you just see them closed up everywhere. Um, you know, some of them will survive. You know, there certainly will, there are restaurants that will survive. There's, there's no question about that. Some of them have learned to shift to takeout. Uh, even, even at the very high end, I get, I get uh, notices from uh, uh, Daniel Ballou, who's one of the you know, great <laughs> chefs in America, saying, you know, get, get our Christmas dinner for, you know, $75. We'll drop it off at your house, that kind of thing. So, you know, some restaur- restaurants will survive. But I think what you're going to see is that when the pandemic ends and people can start going to restaurants uh, again, um, you'll see a lot fewer restaurants. And it will take, I think, a generation for restaurants to build up to where they were just because there'll be so little capital left in the industry. Right. And, and you know, as we've been saying all week, if you've seen your restaurant close down, if you've had to lay off staff, if you've worked for years to build up a successful restaurant, do you really have the fortitude, never mind the capital, to actually start all that whole process yeah. again? So, Joe, I was listening to Carl Riccadonna speaking with uh, the guys a little earlier on today, and he was talking about it's better to take a scattergun approach than a rifle approach. And I'm paraphrasing. But in a sense, this is a rifle approach, right? As, as you said, you can re-employ a lot of people if you target just even one airline, whereas targeting restaurants is, is more scattergun. It's definitely a lot more difficult to put together. Absolutely. That, that 100 percent. And um, I think that the, the, PP, the PPP experience, excuse me, <clears throat> the PPP experience has not um, been all that satisfactory for Congress. I mean, so many, so many uh, uh, companies got left, left out. So many felt like, uh, you know, larger companies got money that didn't really need it and so on and so forth. So it's really hard to put together a program uh, that would work. I mean, I do think that the program the restaurant industry put together would have worked if, had, if it had been tried. But, of course, we'll never know because it didn't get tried. Hey, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. This is just a fascinating column here. Uh, Joe Nacera, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Uh, you can read Joe's work and all the good work from the folks at Bloomberg Opinion by typing in Bloomberg.com slash opinion or op. 
I N Go on the Bloomberg terminal. And Vani, you know, you think about it, and again, it's not just New York cities; it's it's cities around the country, uh, small towns around the country, where restaurants, which operate in such a razor thin margin to begin with are really, really having a tough time, understandably. Exactly. They usually only have a few weeks, you know, leg room, let's say, and 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 that obviously ran out very, very early on. And, and some of them couldn't even take the PPP money because they weren't sure if they'd be able to re-employ their people or if they were going to be able to keep them on the books. They couldn't make that uh, that call that early yep. on. So it's, it's a desperate situation. Yeah. So now if you're a restaurateur, you're saying, can I make it to March, April, May, June? Because um, that's presumably when the light at the end of the tunnel uh, really is out there for so many people. We've got a whole host of economic data this morning seeming to drive home the story that the economy uh, is slowing down. The consumer uh, is feeling it uh, in the pocketbook, whether you look at consumer spending, consumer income, uh, all kind of challenging. And and I guess that should not be surprising given the unemployment uh, that we continue to see and the jobless claims that we continue to see in this economy. To get a sense of what this means for markets, we welcome Ben Emmons, Managing Director, Global Macro Strategy at Medley Global Advisors. Ben, thanks so much for joining us once again. Give us your take on kind of the economic data we saw this morning and how that may impact your outlook. Morning, Paul. Thanks for having us. Uh, yeah, it was a mixed bag in terms of the, the data. Um, you know, if you drill into the spending data, you see that the savings rate continues to decline. So there is still spending happening, people drawing on savings. But there's also a wedge between those who make uh, income in the manufacturing uh, sector that's actually outpacing those in the services sector. And that does explain, you know, what's happening in the economy, right? We're, we're closed down a lot of places. Again, services are really depressed and it's all drive driven by manufacturing, which, you know, is really the pandemic that's, that's driving that. So the economy is mixed at the moment. It's good to see the stimulus bill, you know, potentially getting larger if that actually would have happened. But, I think we're dealing with subdued activity for the moment, which is reflected in the markets, so low yields and uh, sideways uh, movement in stocks. Ben, I'm seeing more and more notes talking about inflation. Even Cameron cries this morning of Bloomberg saying he's rolling the dice. He doesn't think inflation will stay under the radar. And you think higher inflation is on the way as well. Explain the case. Yeah, funny, I think that, that is certainly a case. You know, there, there is obviously, as the pandemic does get resolved next year, that the general view is that we're going to make up for all the lost services activity already on top of this production activity that we've seen, which is very strong this year because of the pandemic. But then you also think about the expectations. So we've pretty much normalized in the markets, at least, in expectations. Interestingly, that, you know, say a five-year expectation is about the same as what people think in 10 years from now. And it tends to be coinciding with sort of a point in history, at least, that the economy does firm up as inflation is what people think is better than than, uh, than what it was. And I think that's important because if people had an, an expectation, we'll continue to see really low inflation, if not risk of deflation. The economy cannot really recover, right? It cannot really get stronger. I also look at real yields, the yield accounted for inflation. And we're hitting pretty close to the levels that we've seen in 2012. We all remember from that time, we rose pretty fast in real yields the following years, the economy firmed. Again, probably in a more an expectation that the economy will be driven by a, a further rise in inflation in the future, uh, rather than, say, a, um, a major investment boom, for example. So I think this is why there's an anticipation that inflation will be a bit higher next year for the time being. 
All right. So, Ben, we've seen uh, in the equity markets uh, a rotation trade, a pronounced rotation trade, really, I would argue, since September. Um, investors discounting uh, uh, an opening of the economy in the, in the back half of next year. Given the economic data that we're seeing today, and do you still, do you still feel that's a reasonable call for equity investors? I think so, Paul. I think that the rotation that started in August was a was a very good sign of that the, the market believes that one we we can solve the pandemic and the science is now shown that we can, which that does mean that we can to an extent normalize activity that we've known before, and because the market took such a collapse in the traditional activity of the economy, right, the services in person services. That's a big gap still between that sector of the market and, say, technology. So there's far more room to rotate, so to speak, and to sort of reposition your portfolio for this upside in the services economy that we're likely going to see next year. Um, and I would point out that because you know part of the services is particularly financial services, you know, there was of course a nice surprise next week, last week on the on the the buyback and dividend uh, resumption because of the stress test that. Financials have an opportunity to outperform, which will add to the rotation, I think, in the first quarter. So we're almost out of time, Ben, but just give me the reason why you expect demand will bounce back so substantially next year. After all, we still haven't got uh, you know, even a $600 check into people's pockets for the next phase of relief. And it's not at all clear that we're going to have business creation at the small business level. And funny, I think that there is, of course, a further government support needed. You know, Biden had an interesting speech during the campaign that he really wanted to put a center stage on small business. So there perhaps will be more initiative on his administration to revive small business. Clearly, the pandemic plays a big role there, obviously, given the shutdown activity that we're seeing. I also want to point out the global story. Right? There is very much a revival globally to be expected, too. If, indeed, also trade, as it's already shown, is revived this year as a leading indicator. I think that's all a point to that we're going to see more uh, revival next year in demand as the pandemic hopefully gets resolved. Well, it certainly wouldn't be unwelcome and it wouldn't be unwelcome inflation in that instance, Ben. So thank you. Much appreciate your analysis and, of course, all of your contributions through the entire year. Ben Emmons is Managing Director at Global Macro Strate- of Global Macro Strategy at Medley Global Advisors. Uh, once again, Ben Emmons, MD at Medley Global Advisors, joining us. Now, we got a raft of economic data this morning from mortgage applications, which were up 0.8%. We got inflation data, durable goods orders, initial jobless claims. I mean, it was just (laughs) an absolute boatload of data. An economist delight. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Let's bring in an economist who was delighted. Yelena Shulyateva, Senior Economist for Bloomberg Economics. So, Yelena, what can we take away from the raft of data this morning? Broadly better picture, broadly deteriorating picture? Broadly deteriorating. I think uh, the recent uh, bout of data are telling us that uh, basically things are really getting worse. And uh, unfortunately, it will get much worse before it gets better, according to our projections. So uh, what really stood out for me this morning was a significant deterioration in uh, personal income and spending uh, for the month of November. as, as we saw, personal income uh, dropped by 1.1% in the month, and uh, that was attributable to decreases in proprietor's income, 
resulting from the expiration of uh, the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, farmers' income plunged, and uh, other benefits also uh, decreased. So this is basically telling us that uh, this uh, new fiscal package is absolutely required, and it is required immediately uh, to support uh, continued uh, spending consumer spending in the economy. So, unfortunately, we will see things uh, really uh, drop, uh, deteriorate uh, in the coming weeks, and uh, we even expect a negative rating on payrolls for the month of December. All right. So, Yelena, I guess the, the, the question for a lot of folks is the first quarter of next year, the, the dark winter, if you will, the pandemic numbers hopefully uh, will peak. That's what we're hearing from some of the folks in the healthcare. But it's going to be a very difficult time. The question, I guess, for an economist is, are we going to have negative GDP in the first quarter, you know, the dreaded double-dip recession? All right. So uh, we still expect uh, the fourth quarter to eke uh, some uh, positive growth in the vicinity of 2.5%. But then, yes, we expect uh, a negative print on the first quarter GDP. Uh, we have long forecasted uh, half a percentage point drop. Uh, but if uh, COVID cases really accelerate and uh, uh, result in broad-based lockdowns, particularly in uh, very highly densely populated areas such as New York and California, we may see even a bigger drop in the first quarter of next year. So a lot will depend on what happens to consumer spending. And uh, again, this morning's data continued to uh, show that uh, services are deteriorating and that will uh, certainly continue into the first quarter. We saw uh, restaurant spending and transportation really, really declining. And uh, uh, what what really was worrying to me is the drop in durable goods spending. So and that comes uh, despite a significantly high savings uh, that consumers still have. So we'll see where it goes. But uh, if consumer sentiment, consumer confidence declines significantly uh, going into the next year, then we may see some um, declines in consumer spending and overall growth as well. Can we take any heart from the fact that housing might be at least some bright spot in the economy, even though today's numbers again were a deterioration from the previous month? Right, uh, Vani. I think uh, the uh, the decline in both uh, existing and new home sales uh, this week was really a reflection of uh, shortage, severe shortage in inventories rather than uh, a, a declined interest in uh, buying houses. I think... Uh, that we will continue to see strong demand for housing going into 2021. And uh, that will be supported not only by um, low interest rates, low mortgage rates, but also uh, by shifting preferences uh, for uh, more suburban living, for more remote living. So anecdotal evidence suggests that people are even accepting lower wages to be able to work from remote locations. And I don't think that even if uh, we defeat the crisis, even if the pandemic is taken care of uh, sometime uh, you know, next year, I yep. think uh, this trend will probably stay with us, at least partially, supporting right. strong demand for housing. Yelena, thank you so much uh, once again for joining us. Yelena Shuletyeva, Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics, helping us to parse through the raft of economic data we had this morning that, as Elena suggested, on the margin uh, is uh, more negative than we had seen. But again, that's, uh, and it really so much depends upon the pandemic numbers over the next several months. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.